This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey, Candice. Hey, Jane. Do you remember a couple podcasts again when we talked about Rosie the Riveter? I do. And the topic of revisionist history came up. That's right. And how people had sort of misinterpreted what Rosie was. And the great thing about revisionist history is that mm-hmm. you have the freedom to go back and correct these misconceptions about the past, as yeah. long as you're doing it in a scholarly and authentic and well-researched sort of way. That's right. And to my knowledge, one of the most constantly revised stories is the uh, discovery, if you can even call it that, even that word has been revised, mm-hmm. of America. And I know when I was little, I was taught the whole, uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He wanted to prove to everyone that the world around it was not flat. And he may very well have done that, mm-hmm. but I also learned that he found America. And then I learned later that that's not exactly the truth. That's, that's right. Yeah, people jump on, on that story a lot saying, you know, he didn't discover it. Uh, there were plenty of people there, obviously, so you can't use the word discover. It's a very... Um very egotistical thing to do, to say right. that just because, you know, you're from a different civilization and you're imposing your, your laws and your culture on another land that you've discovered it. It's you right. Really. You've, you've visited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very Eurocentric, which, which a lot of people in the past 50 years or so are really jumping on. They're right. We, we sh- they're, they want to take the emphasis away from Europe and be like, we should have a worldly perspective on things. Yeah. So, Columbus, just because you had cuter breaches and some of the other explorers out there doesn't mean you get to claim America. And we know for a very, very truthful fact that uh, people from Asia came over to America long before Columbus. We're talking some 10,000 years ago when mm-hmm. they crossed the Bering Land Bridge from Siberia into what is now modern-day Alaska. Yeah, and they think that's how it was originally populated. Right. But there's a scholar named Gavin Menzies who wrote a book back in 2003, I think, called 1421, the year China discovered America. And this caused a huge splash. First of all, it was a hu- it was hugely popular. It got like the bestseller list and everything like that. But um, 
it wasn't well received by a lot of the so-called respected historians. We're talking anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, and what's more, linguists, all these people who would be very involved in studying the way that a culture attaches itself to a land and the way that people interact and how trade occurs, all these different pieces of evidence, tangible and and non-tangible, that would (laughs) prove a culture had been assimilated into another. That's right, and according to Menzies' theory, uh, we should emphasize that uh, the Chinese actually arrived in America, explored it um, about seven decades before Columbus even set foot there. Mm-hmm. And the story goes that this Chinese admiral, uh, Zhang He, I believe it's pronounced, I'm not sure, uh, but he, it's well known that this guy went on extensive trips and he explored a lot of the world, um, but it's not accepted that he actually went all the way to America. Menzies claims that he, in fact, did. And we should mention that, you know, this guy, in his own, he... Uh, he was a great explorer, and he had these ships. The Chinese ships were called junks, and uh, they were gargantuan. They were um, they dwarfed the ships that actually Columbus sailed on. Well, and he was part of the Ming Dynasty, and yeah. he had what, like a, a twenty-eight thousand person fleet. Right. Yeah, that's what I. Yeah, yeah. So the, the ships had to be pretty big to mm-hmm. accommodate all of those sailors. And just like sailors from the Western Hemisphere had their own thoughts and theories about the sea, and they had their you know mythical colony of Atlantis. These Chinese sailors had their own ideas about the sea and exploration, too. And one of the things they believed in was Fusang. And I'm not sure if I'm getting the pronunciation quite right, but please forgive me. Fusang was this mythological or legendary land really analogous to Atlantis. And then a couple years ago, a Baptist missionary named Dr. Hendon M. Harris found a map of what he thinks was Fusang, and he noted that it looked a whole lot like North America. And what's more, the map noted all of these geographic and topographic likenesses between North America and Fusang. It even showed something like the Grand Canyon, and people started to wonder, well, how would the Chinese have such an inc- intricate knowledge of North America if they mm-hmm. hadn't been there? That's right, and Harris tried to uh, write about this and, and, and advertise it to people to make it known, and uh, not a lot of people jumped on board with his, with his ideas um, until Menzies came along, and he really loved it. And actually, Menzies is a kind of amateur historian. He uh, really has naval experience. He was in the British Royal Navy, and that's really the experience that he calls upon to um, to claim that he can that he can make these interpretations because he claims that he can read these maps better than like normal historians can. He can read, read the maps and the charts. And uh, there was actually another map called the uh, 1418 map, I believe, uh, that shows oceans in seven continents accurately, and they believe that this, you know, proves beyond a doubt that, like, the Chinese knew much more than we thought they did. And I think that this 1418 map even shows formations like the Potomac River exactly yeah. where they're supposed to be. That's and, shocking. And the continents are the right size and they're in the right locations. And Menzies is claiming that not only did the Chinese explore the world first, but also the Europeans used Chinese maps to guide them to the New World. Right. Their figure. That is, it's really bothering a lot of historians that he's making these claims, too, because, you know, they, they've based their, their lives studying things that, that Menzies is calling all falsehoods. And so um, uh, Menzies is pointing this in the, and saying, hey, hey, I know I'm getting a lot of critics, but like, look at look at what their stake in it is. One of the problems with the 1418 map that the critics have pointed out is that uh, China, as far as it's depicted on the map, is sort of a mess. Like It has a, a blobby shape. It's not really true to form. And it's not emphasized and um, delineated as clearly as it should be mm-hmm. if the Chinese, in fact 
drew this map of the world, you would think that if they had made this discovery, they would have really put a lot of emphasis on their own land. Yeah, you think didn't. if they knew anything, they would know that very well. And also another another point that um, critics point to is that the map is based on the fact that the world is round. And uh, historians are pretty confident that the Chinese did not know this at that time. So with all of these glaring loopholes in the theory, why on earth would Menzies continue to pursue his studies? And the answer is that there are a lot of really strange coincidences going on. Uh, there are a lot of uh, Native American folk stories that support the fact that the Chinese were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that even one of the, the Incan rulers had a legend that he communicated with a Chinese admiral who taught him how to govern his land. We know that the Native Americans had horses, and while for a while historians presumed that the horses came from Europeans, some people presumed that they came from the Chinese now, because we know that Chinese soldiers used horses very, very religiously in their cavalry. That's right. The, the story is that, that the Spaniards brought uh, horses over to the first time to America. I mean, giving us a side that, that his horses were actually brought over originally, but went extinct like thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, now they think, or at least Menzies think, that China, China was actually the first one to bring it over after that. And what's more, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, archaeologists have found Chinese coins in eight different places. And then somewhere else in the Midwest, they found a Native American garment that has, it was about 300 years old as far as they can date it, but it has Chinese beads on it. So people are wondering, well, where do these things come from mm-hmm. if the Chinese weren't here working with these people? One of the stories that I find really interesting is a different take on the story I was told in history class, which was had to do with the Aztec Emperor Montezuma. And the story was, everyone knows, is that Cortez went to meet Montezuma, and uh, the emperor mistook him for a god, and uh, that's how Cortez was able to sort of infiltrate. Um, but uh, Menzies actually postulates that uh, that Montezuma actually mistook Cortez for his grandfather returning from the east, as if he were familiar with eastern people at that time. And so Menzies' interpretations, they certainly seem to hold water. But when you look at some of the the common factors that are just missing from the Chinese coming to America first story, you have to stop and say, no, that that can't possibly be. Like, we know that when the Norse came, the Vikings came, they were there about a thousand years before Columbus came, 70 years before the Chinese would have been there. And we can still see today, even though they're in ruins, the stone Mm -hmm. outposts that they built. So if the Chinese came, where are the, you know, the, the the standing artifacts, you know, the ruins, the structures that they would have showed the people how to build and vice versa. And why didn't the Chinese take back things like gold and corn and tomatoes like the European the European fleets did when they came back to Europe from the New World. That's right. There's no smoking gun that really Menzies can point to. And another thing is that uh, some historians, notably uh, Robert Finlay, um, has pointed out that uh, the Chinese could not have nourished the horses that they supposedly brought over on their ships. Apparently, horses need a certain amount of water, obviously, <laughs> and they were surrounded by, by salt water, and they didn't have the uh, the desalinization uh, processes that would have been appropriate to uh, feed all these horses. Water, water everywhere, but yeah. not a drop to drink. How about that? And actually, one historian in particular, Dr. Jeff White, he is so riled up about the glaring inaccuracies mm. and inauthenticity of Menzies' account that he has filed a complaint against the UK publishers who published Menzies' book. And um, I'm using air quotes, even though you can't see them. He calls it <laughs> Menzies' history book. And you can just you can feel the derision just right. rolling off of that description. He's, right. he's very upset about it. And because- he makes some some stark claims. He's he's like, oh, look at this map. He even claims that one of the maps that Menzies uses uh, evidence was is a fake. It, that it was made for Menzies. 
Isn't that wild? And we all know how to do that. You sort of, you know, roll it in ground coffee and then you burn the edges so it looks really authentic and old. Did you That's right. That and, he, and he actually points to evidence that, like, this map was drawn based on Jesuit maps of the 17th century because it makes the same mistakes. The mistakes that California was an island and, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. That China was at the center of the world and uh, the text was translated into Chinese from Jesuit. Right. So there you go. But if you want to talk about another smoking gun, I guess you could say, to borrow Jane's phrase again, uh, when the the Ming Dynasty eventually collapsed. The dynasty that overcame it wanted to bury all evidence that had ever existed from the Ming Dynasty. Wanted right. to cover up all their accomplishments, everything that they had done, because they were establishing a new rule and order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can never prove that Menzies is wrong because all this evidence is destroyed. Um, and critics actually point to uh, Menzies' arrogance in, in this area, saying he's uh, Menzies is quoted as saying, uh, "There's not one chance in a million that I'm wrong." And so he's sort of sticking in the face of, of these. Um, respected historians that you can understand how how upset they can get over this, you know? Wow, that's some pretty amazing hubris right there. <laughs> but whether or not it is true, we may never know, but it is testament to the fact that history isn't a stale and uh, finalized topic of study. It's constantly changing, and that's revisionist true. history really points to that, and that's what's so exciting about it. Not that yeah. not that you can be an amateur historian and go out there and fabricate maps and make up your own <laughs> theories about who found what first, yeah. but that this is a field of study that's open to, you know, the new and rising and the young so, people in the profession. And it's so popular, too, because one thing about Menzies' uh, fame is that he was able to create a website around it, and people would respond with their own evidence. They're like, ooh, there, there's a junk buried uh, off the coast of where I live, and, and you it's know, I know. And like people are just coming in and Amenzies is actually uh, writing a sequel or he did write a sequel um, based on like evidence that he got submitted from fans. How about that? Yeah. Well, and speaking of submitting evidence from fans, if you ever have an idea for one of our history podcasts or have a history question that you want to know, go ahead and email me and Jane at podcast at howstuffworks.com. Just put history in the subject line and we'll be happy to tackle some of your queries. And in the interim, to satisfy your desire to learn more about China and some famous Chinese rulers out there, be sure to check out HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.